Thanks for downloading this Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland podcast. For more information on the centre, go to ucd.ie forward slash history forward slash chomi. In this episode, a recording from the medical training, student experience and the transmission of knowledge circa 1800 to 2014 symposium, which took place in the UCD Humanities Institute in October 2014. The symposium was organised by Laura Kelly of University College Dublin and was generously supported by the Irish Research Council and the Wellcome Trust. Podcasting was by Real Smart Media. In this episode, a recording from Panel 5, Medical Education and Educational Reform in the 20th Century. The paper, The Irish Response to Flexner and the Transformation of American Medical Education in the 20th Century, was given by Greta Jones of the University of Ulster. Thank you very much. Um, thank you um, to the organisers for inviting me. And, um, of course, I must thank Welcome for um, subsidising uh, a much bigger project uh, on medical emigration, doctor emigration from Ireland, of which this is a small part and a summary of some of the things which I think bear on the experience of the undergraduate, although I will talk a lot about uh, large institutions, uh, medical professional bodies and governments during the course of this. In 1865, Ireland had 20% of the population of the UK as a whole but had 36% of all first-year medical students. In 1935, when the Irish population had declined to less than 10% of the total population in the British Isles, Irish medical schools still educated 20% of first-year students. This level of student numbers in Irish medical schools was sustained by immigration. And the Irish medical profession did not see this as a loss, but as as an advantage. Deans of medical schools would often lecture their students on the great advantages open to the Irish medical graduate by emigration. Medical emigration was what kept Irish universities in existence in the 19th and 20th centuries. It was the largest faculty in nearly all of the um, Irish third-level institutions from the 19th century to the um, first couple of decades of the um, 20th. By the 1950s, other faculties were becoming as important as the medical in sustaining universities, but for a long time, the lack of a thriving medical school was a sure sign a university would soon be in difficulties, and I would argue probably that was one of the um, issues that enticed Galway to offer themselves to American uh, GI um, undergraduates. The medical culture and institutions in Ireland were also sustained at a much higher level than might otherwise have been possible by the amount of medical students um, taken in, which exceeded for all the period from 1860 to 1960 the jobs available in Ireland itself. Educating for export was not unique to Ireland. The number of Scottish medical emigrants exceeded the Irish for most of the 19th and 20th century. Though though work has yet to be done on other uh, cultures of export, in the 1960s and 1970s, when the issue of uh, global migration, particularly in the medical marketplace, became more interesting to sociologists and economics, um, certain schools in Europe were also identified as educating students for eventual emigration or educating a high proportion of their undergraduates for emigration. This included American citizens who had failed to get a place in the medical schools of the United States. Among these were schools in Belgium, Italy, Spain and Switzerland. 
Other schools acted as stop-offs for citizens of other countries who were then exported often to the United States also at that period. France and Formosa were identified in this context. Also, some schools in Switzerland were identified in a process of two-stage emigration. They took in the political refugees in the 1930s and then educated their sons and daughters for export to the USA post-1945. However, the possibility of emigration depended upon access to the medical marketplace in the countries of destination. Britain and the British Empire was the most important destination for Irish medical graduates in the period 1860 to 1960. This was facilitated by the inclusion of Ireland in the Medical Register of the United Kingdom set up in 1858. However, politics intervened and in 1922 the 26 counties of the South became independent. This uh, was, for a while, seen as threatening access, and in 1925 to 26, this led to a major confrontation between Irish doctors and the new state in Southern Ireland. The Irish government proposed to create a separate register and disciplinary body for Ireland, which, in the view of most of the Irish medical profession, especially its schools, had the potential to endanger or complicate access to Britain and the Empire, and therefore, by implication, would reduce the amount of medical students they could take in and educate. In the end, the problem was solved by mutual recognition, though not before the bitter disputes that characterised uh, the late 1920s. But whatever um, the success in the Irish government in um, providing or creating its own register, the General Medical Council of the United Kingdom still exercised the right of visitation and inspection of Irish medical schools as the price of entry onto the United Kingdom register. There are occasional warning signs about this relationship. In 1944, the Goodenough Report on Medical Education was published in Britain. It advocated reconstructing British medical education to put clinical training much more at its heart, following, in fact, the spirit of Flexner. British medical schools began a process of remodelling their education and clinical training, and the reforms were enshrined in a medical act passed in 1950 by the uh, um, British Parliament. A series of high-level meetings preceding this took place between the Irish government, representatives of the Irish medical schools and the British in the late 1940s to assess the impact on graduates from Irish schools. The outcome was that Irish graduates retained right of access, but in lieu of their participation in an approved course of clinical training in a hospital, they were now awarded the letter P, meaning provisional registration, on the UK medical register. It was anticipated, though, that in a couple of years most medical immigrants would eventually acquire this training in Britain and have the P removed. Flexner was, in fact, the propelling force for changes in education in both Ireland and and Britain. The Rockefeller Foundation took an interest in the new Irish state in the 1920s and visited it to offer money for public health projects, but also for a new... um, uh, for reforms in medical, Irish medical education. They offered sums of money for a new amalgamated medical school in Dublin based on the Flexner model. In this, they failed miserably. <laughs> Defeated largely by sectarian and medical rivalries and the unpleasant atmosphere which they noticed, 
and which they talk very frankly about in their letters back to the, um, their offices in the USA, the unpleasant atmosphere created by the medical registry co um, controversy during that time. Changes in Britain in British education forced the Irish to rethink the structure of their medical education in the 1940s because of good enough. But perhaps the greatest shock to the existing organisation of Irish medical education came in 1950 and it came from the United States of America. Following the Second World War, America, particularly the United States, began to attract on a much larger scale than ever graduates of foreign medical schools. This was coincident with the rise of the United States as a global economic and political power. Though immigration was still predominantly European, the numbers of medical immigrants from Asia, Africa and the developing world also rose. Only in the post-war period did, did medical emigration to the USA become significant for Irish medical graduates. That's not to say it didn't take place before, but uh, in fact... In the uh, three quarters of the emigration that I have traced uh, of Irish medical graduates after 1945, uh, three quarters of all immigration to Canada and the USA took place 1950 to 60. Of the cohorts who moved to practice outside Ireland from 1950 to 60, 19% were in North America. This was less than the 60% emigrating to Great Britain in the same period, but more than for any other de destination. Doctor emigration was routine for Irish medical schools, but emigration to the USA was very much a feature of the 1950. This gave rise to tensions in the uh, professional body of American doctors, the chief one, the American Medical Association, the AMA. The AMA was very worried uh, in 1945 that, uh, uh, about the livelihood of American doctors and, the, uh, and the, that the uh, livelihood of American doctors and the status of American medicine might be uh, imperiled by medical immigration. In 1950, therefore, they attempt to influence medical immigration into the USA by publishing a list of approved foreign medical schools, schools which, in their view, provided a standard of medical education equivalent to that in the United States. The approved list of foreign medical schools did not have the force of law. Individual states set their own rules governing the right to practice of foreign doctors. But the AMA were influenced by the history of the Flexner reforms because these promoted by the coming together of private philanthropists, hospitals, educational authorities and the AMA in a campaign influenced practice in school and schools and colleges and raised the expectation of the consumers of American medicine. So, and, and I mean, I defer to John Harley Warner here, who is the historian of this process, but in fact, um, it was in, on the whole successful in transforming American education. Again, uh, the, uh, the, the, these changes had no legislative force, but they were successful. And part of the process was the issuing of an annual handbook which graded American medical schools according to the standard of education they provided. And what essentially the AMA proposed to do was to extend this practice to foreign medical schools. The issuing of this handbook in 1950 threw Irish medicine into turmoil. Six of its seven medical schools were omitted from the list of approved foreign medical schools. The only one on the list was Queen's University Medical School in Belfast, which in any case was in Northern uh, Ireland, and which was still part of the UK and therefore part of the British medical system. 
The 27 foreign medical schools, which the AMA considered to have reached the standard of an American education in 1950, included, this goes down very well in a, um, a, a, a European and uh, um, audience, but first of all, Denmark 1, Finland 2, Netherlands 4, Norway 1, Sweden 3. The UK had 16 approved schools, 10 in England, 4 in Scotland, 1 in Wales, and 1, of course, in Northern Ireland. By 1953, a new handbook was issued, and the list had risen to 39, now including Brazil 1, Belgium 4, Lebanon 1, Switzerland 5, and China 1. Now, as critics pointed out, and there were serious critics of this system in the AMA, the process of evaluation of schools was ad hoc. The AMA relied on reports generally of members visiting these countries for conferences, who then took off time to make an inspection on the AMA's behalf, so that it tended to favour the Nordic and Western European countries. In 1949, this happened when a small group of AMA members visiting the UK for a conference broke off to visit Ireland. Also, uh, according to the AMA's own estimates, there are approximately 566 medical schools in the world, and the AMA acknowledged that it could not possibly afford the cost of any systematic examination of all of them. Thus, they re relied on reportage. And critics also pointed out something which in the end was to produce... Uh, proved fatal for this system, that this system penalised the good physician in a bad school. It would, they argued, be fairer to offer the individual a qualifying example and condemn them because of their school. And in fact, it's by 1958, this was effectively what had happened. The AMA um, offered in that year um, a, an exam organised by an offshoot of them, the Educational Commission for Foreign Medical Graduates, so that you could take as an individual a, um, an exam. Uh, right. Moreover, at that time, they were also um, considered that the influence of the approved school in a, approved list in America was patchy. Some states had adopted it, but many had simply ignored it. In 1956, only 25% of states had adopted it. 75% of and 75% of licensed foreign uh, educated doctors were from schools not on the approved list. Moreover, there was uh, the AMA's fear for American medicine proved um, groundless. This was a period of expanding economy. The demand for health care was rising. American doctors were making a decent living on the whole. And it was shortage of doctors uh, rather than uh, oversupply that was the problem. Um, and this led, of course, to um, foreign um, educated doctors being concentrated in the lower paid uh, uh, occupations in state hospitals and institutions which came heavily to rely upon the medical immigrant. Now, the political consequences of all this. The AMA uh, were actually asked the State Department, is this a problem for you if we issue this approved list? What's your attitude? The State Department was somewhat perplexed, but it just said, well, this is your own business and we can't see any possible consequences for um, foreign policy in this. But there were. The AMA in 1952 was informed by its officers that, to quote, the diplomatic services of France, Italy and the Irish Free State have protested the absence of schools in these countries from the list. Other representations indicate that there are schools in Mexico and Indi India which desire to be included in the list. 
Representations from yet more schools demanding visitation followed, including West Germany, Italy, South America and China. The politics of all this are extremely complicated. I don't propose to go do anything other than concentrate on the the free um, state. But the AMA found themselves bombarded with memorandum from various local and national representatives of aggrieved governments. The Department of Foreign Affairs of the Republic, the DFA, became involved after representations from the Irish universities and also their consuls in New York and Chicago. And it's in the DFA memorandum that a step-by-step account uh, is there of uh, their representations and the work they did behind the scenes to get this uh, decision uh, reversed. But, and here's where, in a sense, the um, Irish medical graduate experiencing education in Ireland comes in because one of the things which the consuls were alarmed about, which energised them, was that they received two memoranda of complaints from an unofficial group of Irish medical immigrants to the USA, calling itself the Irish University's Medical Club of Chicago, and then there was another one called the Irish University's uh, Medical Club of New York. The DFA uh, and their grievances about their education were long and uh, bitter and uh, uh, even one one could say um, apocalyptic. The DFA coordinated efforts to try and get the decision on Irish schools reversed and they failed. But they did secure a second visitation by the AMA in September 1953, which they hoped would overturn the original decision. The 1953 report, to the great disappointment of the schools, however, and government and public opinion in Ireland, reiterated the position taken by the AMA in 1950. What was especially alarming was that after this second visitation failed to validate the education in Irish medical schools, a visitation by the GMC of the UK was scheduled for 1954. In the light of the AMA's criticism, this was awaited with much trepidation because still 60% of Irish medical immigrants out of Ireland, medical immigrants, 60% of them, their destination was Britain and to not be recognised by the GMC would be fatal. However, the GMC report, when it was issued, unfortunately concurred with the criticisms of the AMA, but crucially it did not withhold recognition. And this was hardly surprising given the importance of the Irish immigrant doctor, the British Health Service, and also I would say the very close institutional and personal ties which existed between the medical establishments of Ireland and Britain. This included generous representation of Irish medical schools on the Council of the GMC. The recent history manifesto by Joe Goldie and David Armitage, which I looked at last week, um, condemns anatomised, that's that word again, and short-term history and uh, short-termism in history, and exhorts historians to raise their eyes from the text and explain meta-themes in history. So this has emboldened me to draw a few lessons, unwisely probably, uh, about this whole um, issue. First uh, conclusion I have, which relates to the experience of Irish medical education, is that the problems that they had were of long standing. And in 1895, in the journal of the AMA, um, one of the American doctors located in Chicago visited Dublin and uh, Belfast medical institutions. And he 
praise the state of surgery in Ireland. He was full of praise for surgeons who, to quote, are wide awake in the development of surgical pathology and the adoption of new physical, new surgical resources. But he also drew attention to two perennial problems in Irish medical education, the lack of resources and the multiplicity of Dublin hospitals. He says, it is unfortunate this old and otherwise enterprising city, Dublin, does not possess a general hospital where the clinical material could be centralised and made more available for clinical teaching. Not any of the hospitals contain more than 120 beds, and these where the clinical teaching is done are often distant from the medical school to which they are attached, hence the popularity of the bicycle in um, the medical uh, graduate, the medical undergraduate experience. The number of Dublin hospitals was a tribute to the philanthropic impulse of the 19th century, but the obverse side was that rivalries between them and many of who taught in medical schools also held consultancy in these hospitals meant it was very difficult to amalgamate and procure a form along the lines of Flexner. Second, the multiplicity of hospitals was aggravated by sectarian divisions. Irish medical education became more, not less, denominational in the late 19th and early 20th century. A Catholic doctor practicing in the USA and visiting Queens for a gathering of his old, um, his graduate year, his alumni, told me, this is a personal communication, although I think it illustrates a more general point which I've come across. He told me the anger he felt when it was assumed by the faculty at Queens that, he, um, that his training at, would be at the only Catholic hospital in Belfast, the Mater. He did not want to do this. He felt it limited his options. This was not a Protestant conspiracy, for the Catholic Church was keen for Catholic graduates both to acquire their education in Catholic medical schools and train in Catholic hospitals. So that I think that the uh, saying of the rosary before the dentist, uh, uh, in the dental school was not just an anecdote. It reflects something really much with more deeper and which was a problem for some uh, schools and some of their undergraduates. This bickering about religion was noted by Rockefeller, and strangely enough, um, a closer look at this suggests that some of the other political divisions were affecting uh, medical reform. For example, the pro- and anti-treatyites in, um, in the 1920s also were talking, saying we don't want him because we know what... Yeah, this was not religious, but political... Okay, therefore, the AMA was on the whole correct. Irish medical schools were underfunded, had poor research facilities, very few well-equipped pathological laboratories. The training in hospitals was ad hoc and fragmented, and they also suggested the syllabus of medical schools or syllabi was often less than truthful about what was on, on offer. And, of course, they were all overcrowded. Second point, and I'm nearing the end, is Irish education system was also marred, I think, by a degree of boosterism. Not all medics shared this, and many were relieved and even delighted when the AMA criticised openly things that had seemed to them to be unsatisfactory. Departure from the consensus which said Irish education with its great 19th century traditions was on a par to the best in the world often one made one subject to vitriol by powerful individuals in the medical and university establishments. Witness, for example, the treatment of, uh, uh, to, of the signatories to the letter from, from Irish medical graduates in the USA who were threatened with the withdrawal of recognition of their degrees if they spoke out again. There were reformers in the Irish education system. 
and in the 1930s they again discussed, unsuccessfully, reducing the number of Dublin hospitals. But the spirit of a reform do, did secure some improvements, including in the 1930s Ireland's own Medical Research Council to try and uh, kickstart um, re- research in Irish uh, schools. But neither does the AMA escape criticism. Milton Friedman of the um, Chicago School of Economics worked in the, in, in the same city where the AMA headquarters are, and he described them as one of the most active and successful attempts, uh, uh, their work as one of the most active and successful attempts to enforce a closed shop in the American labor uh, market that he had ever witnessed. So he took a dim view of this. The, uh, and he would argue that the approved list of foreign medical graduates, as well as clunky and unenforceable, uh, un- could also be seen just simply an, another emanation of the AMA's selfish promotion of their selfish interests. Just to conclude, then, the history of medical migration is relatively under-examined, but what a fascinating kaleidoscope it provides for the historian. Medical migration follows empires and imperial subjects return the favour eventually by coming back to um, the the imperial capitals for education. Specific schools in the ecosystem cater for different markets. They import to re-export. They specialise in certain nationalities. They change and uh, and adapt as as the medical environment changes. What tends to regulate and shape them, that influence them, is the issues of registration and, uh, uh, and recognition of different systems of medical education. Finally, the impact of exporting doctors upon individual nations will differ. Much of the work on this was done in, as I say, the greater consciousness in the 1960s about the global impact of migration. And most economists tend to argue uh, in the 1960s it's a big loss to a developing country to lose all its doctors. But in the case of Ireland, I would say it was a great advantage. It's basically, um, it's a case of of Ireland keeping quite a developed educational infrastructure in existence for a long period of time, which otherwise would not necessarily be uh, justified by the amount of um, uh, jobs that it could provide for its doctors. It was very important to the Irish middle class. Uh, It does uh, preserve their status. And it keeps within Ireland a great more educational capital than would otherwise be in existence. Nor does it deprive Irish Ireland of the doctors she needs. Some work done on the mid-1860s I've done suggests that, uh, yes, Ireland was behind Britain in general and Scotland at about uh, the amount of doctors per population. But as time went on by about uh, the the, um, first decade of the 20th century, uh, the amount of doctors you would expect for a population was about right and that finally in the 1960s when some calculation was done by other people on this issue, Ireland had slightly more doctors than her population and resources um, uh, indicated, so that's it. <laughs>